We are in the midst of a series called You Keep Using That Word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And um, so Kevin had picked out a series of words that he thought we use, overuse, misuse, um, just have like words that are kind of like people on, on, a, on a journey where their suitca- they pack their suitcases and bring along with you. So as that word arrives in your life, in my life, all of a sudden it comes with a whole bunch of luggage. And so we want to talk about what those words are and, and what they bring. So um, here are some of the words we've been doing. We did Bible, faith, religion, gospel, and today we are doing the word saved. Um, in all of this, we hope that our conversations spark understanding, conversation, interest, and that overall we are able to redeem the word. Um, that if there's a word out there that, that you're afraid to use now, for I know a lot of people will say, I'm not really comfortable using the word Christian, because the word Christian seems to mean something else in the media. And we might be adding that word. I think people have requested that we add the word Christian, so we might do that as well and talk a little bit about that. But we actually believe that those words can be redeemed um, and that they can be used again in our vocabulary. And when we sit down and wrestle with them and understand them um, in our life and in our culture, that um, we might be able to use them in a a new and redeemed way. Uh, So you keep using that word, and here we are on the word saved. So all of those ways in which we use the word saved, right? Um, How about if you play video games, I saved my game, right? Yes? Oh, we've got like a, yes, Pastor Danielle, preach it, okay? So you save your game or you have so many lives saved, right? Is that how that works, Josiah? Do you get to save your lives and have, okay, good. Um, Someone, uh, I won't mention any names, my daughter Tabby, um, got me hooked this week on a game called Candy Crush Saga. Oh, see, collective groans. It is a horrible game, and it makes me, I, I don't have any lives right now, because I had read that you could advance the clock on your phone to get more lives and not pay for them, so I changed the date forward, so now I have to wait like 2,887 minutes till my next life. So those of you who play the game know that I'm, it's okay. I'm going to be all right, but I might need to just put the game down and never play again. But yeah, so you save your lives. We have lives. We save our money. Um, we save a ticket in a scrapbook. We save our memories. We do all of those different things when we talk about the word saved. And in just a quick image search, um, here are some of the things that I found um, when I searched the word saved. So we've got, you know, Jesus saves, and he's saving that, you know, slap shot in the hockey net. And we've also got a, a nice little... Um, you know, thumb drive that is in the shape of a cross because Jesus saves. Um, so have you guys seen all this? And then, um, and then the question of, are you saved? When did you get saved? I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. I'm not perfect, but I'm, you know, saved, rescued, saved, all of this stuff. What do we mean when we say that? And as soon as we start to use the word saved or salvation, really what we're talking about actually doesn't sound like very good news very quickly because we start talking about what we've been saved from, not what we get to go and experience. A lot of times when we say, I'm saved, it means I was saved from the flames of hell, and let me tell you about hell so that you'll want to embrace this great good news about Jesus. And then we just focus a lot about hell. So I did a quick search and found, you know, we're really interested in this still as a culture. Number one New York Times bestseller is like, you know, heaven is beyond your wildest expectations. To heaven and back, a doctor who had an experience, proof of heaven. Um, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, the two, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. So you can figure that out. Or this little kid um, had a near-death experience and wrote a book with his father called Heaven is for Real. 
um, Francis Chan's Erasing Hell. And then, you know, you have that question, how come everyone who has a near-death experience gets to only experience heaven? Well, apparently, some guy had 23 minutes in hell, and he writes about that. He didn't see the bright white light. He saw something else. And then, um, and then heaven is real, but so is hell. And so our community is still talking about something, wrestling with something that we are really fixated on in different ways. And I think oftentimes when we fixate on this, we're fixated on the question of who's getting in and who's getting kept out, right? So do you have your ticket and your ticket to heaven or your ticket to hell? And where are you going and how fast are you going to get there? And when Christians talk about hell, it is often like who's going, how they're going to get there, how fast they're going to get there, how hot it's going to be while they're going to be there, like how long they're going to stay there. Is it, are they going to burn forever and ever in torture and torment? Or are they going to just burn for five minutes? or they'll just be separate. I mean, we talk about all of this when we talk about being saved. None of that sounds like very good news to me. As we continue to rescue through a lot of that and figuring out who's getting in and who's getting out and trying to work through all that stuff, we even have this a lot in our Christian history. Here's a a quick picture of the Inquisition. Um, Not the best, you know, shining moment for Christian history in in Europe. Um, A time when we started deciding that if you weren't surely on the side of God, that it would be better if we quite literally put you in the flames of fire here on earth, which would be just a taste of what you would experience in the, in, in permanently in hell forever. And if you were in those flames, you might have that brief moment of, oh, I'm so sorry, confess Jesus really quick in the fire on the post. And then that way, at least you went to heaven and not to hell. Did you know that that was a lot of theology behind that? It was all about not being saved to something, but being saved from something. It was all this focus on hell and how not to go there. And let's make sure you don't go there. So even if we have to burn you on the stake to make sure you don't go there, we'll do that. There were even people who were taught that if they had committed suicide and taken their own life, that they would go to hell. So instead, they chose to go out and kill somebody so that then they would be killed and burnt at the stake causing them to die so that they could die. They could have that suicide that they wanted, but that they would be in heaven forever rather than in hell because they could confess and be saved at that that last minute. Now, you all have disturbed looks on your faces right now, which is appropriate, but this is part of how we've gotten a little bit to this conversation of who's getting in and who's getting out. And ultimately, whether you're looking at books like this or you're, you're trying to work through who gets in, who gets a ticket, a golden ticket, how do we force somebody into that decision? All of that's part of our history, but ultimately all of it is speculation. Unless somebody here is going to start to tell me that they've been to heaven or to hell, and they're, they're the author of one of those books, and they've had that experience, honestly, some of this we're doing our best to understand, and we understand only in part. So as we talk about saved and as we talk about all this and really ultimately when we work through this stuff, we start talking about judgment and who's going to be judged and how you're going to be judged and how do you get past that pearly gate and into the eternal presence of heaven with Jesus? How do we get saved? All of that's coming into play in that conversation. I think the reason why we do this is because we like certainty. And we like to be able to know that two plus two equals four, and we've completely figured it out. So if I say these words and I say this prayer, then in fact, I am saved. And it almost at that point becomes a place of works. Have you noticed that? 
I don't know if you've thought about it before, but I've been thinking a lot about this. Partly because I was raised with the inheritance of Bill Bright and Campus Crusade. And in 1956, Bill Bright wrote this booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And he broke down the good news about the gospel into four steps. And he said, Do, you guys, maybe most of you are familiar with the four spiritual laws. We talked about them a little bit last week when we talked about the word gospel. When Bill Bright did that, he gave us an excellent tool that works quite well for a lot of people. But did you know that in 2003, before he passed, in a conversation with Richard Mao, the founder of Fuller, not the founder, the past president of Fuller, and just retired this year, Bill Bright said this, if I had it to do all over again, I would downplay the four spiritual laws and place a strong emphasis on the attributes of God. And he's not saying that the truth that is in those four spiritual laws is not true. He's saying that, but he's just saying that outside of a larger understanding, outside of theology, outside of the larger narrative of scripture, we have maybe missed something. We've maybe missed some of the truth, some of the story that is in the word saved salvation and how we have that right relationship with God. So, Since we recognize that maybe the math hasn't worked really well all the time in Christian culture, let's start to go back to the text as we like to do in Spark and ask the question of what did the word saved or salvation mean in the Hebrew times, in the Hebrew Bible, as well as in the Christian New Testament? You guys ready? Okay. When we talk about the word saved in the Bible, it has all of these connotations. Whenever you see the word saved or salvation or save or any of those things, it has a provision of safety. There's an aspect of being liberated, being set free. Um, It's about being recovered or preserved or restored, given victory, delivered from something. It's when God ensures your welfare. It's being rescued and it's being healed. Whenever we talk about saved, it has all of those connotations. A lot of times when Christians talk about saved, we only talk about it from the point of view of maybe the book of Romans or another Pauline letter where we sit there and we say, well, here's what Paul said. Um, Here's what he presented as the gospel. So being saved is simply praying this prayer and now you're done and, you know, now you get to go to heaven. And the business of the church seems to have been ensuring that everybody gets that ticket, prays that prayer and goes to heaven. But the challenge with that is that it meant more than just that in Paul's day. It meant more than that. The emperor of Paul's time would be called the savior. And so as those different Caesars would come into play, they would be the new savior in town. And everybody in that time knew that that was not a good thing, that we were just awaiting new chaos, new idiosyncrasies with that new Caesar. So what does it mean to be saved if that word's being used then? Jesus' very name has the component of the root saved in it. And if in Hebrew you want to save, you say um, Yeshu. So Yeshua is God saves. So you have this component of saved even in names. Joshua has that word saved in it. So the Hebrew people are using this word all of the time in their context. And in the Bible, the word saved is used for all people, Israel, and individuals. That constant, that concept of salvation being given, where God is bringing salvation, what does he bring salvation to? He brings it to all peoples, and he brings it to a specific people, Israel, and he also bears it down to individuals. I think in my tradition growing up, we spent a lot of time focused on what it means to be saved individually. 
But the Bible talks about how all peoples will be invited to participate in that salvation, how all Israel will be invited to participate in that, in that salvation, and also how individuals will as well. Whenever we talk about salvation in the Bible, it's talking about those three components. Now, let me just stop right here and say, I'm not suggesting that the Bible says ever that all people will be saved. I'm simply letting you know that the Bible talks about salvation coming to and being offered to all people. And there's going to be a little distinction there. We can talk about it for a few minutes. When the Bible talks about salvation, it often talks about people being agents of salvation. So when Abraham goes and saves Lot, he is the agent of salvation. And yet no one would say, in, even in Abraham's time, that God wasn't involved in that process. That God uses humans as agents of salvation and that God still gets the credit for that. That God is the one that enables Abraham to rescue, to deliver Lot. It meant something significant during that time. The next three components of salvation in the Bible are that when you talk about salvation, there's these three key components to it. It's earthly and it's spiritual and it's future focused. A lot of times, again, when we talk about the four spiritual laws, we're focused particularly on individual salvation and we're focused particularly on future salvation. That now that I've prayed this prayer and amen, so thankful you prayed the prayer, I will someday get to go to heaven. So there is that component throughout the Bible, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, that it looks towards a future salvation, but it is also very present and earthly. So people talked about being saved right now from an earthly situation, from being sick. They were then saved from that illness. They're being delivered by God's hand into that, from being lost in despair, from being alone, from being um, targeted by enemies. That's that spiritual component as well. They're being physically saved, spiritually saved, and also saved for something to come. So the complexity of salvation in the Bible is that, again, it's applying maybe towards three different things, and it's also applying towards three different components. So we've got all of that kind of wrapped into one. Isn't that cool? That the Bible, when it talks about being saved, talks about the present world right now. And it cares very deeply. God cares very deeply for your physical being, as well as for your spiritual being, as well as for the world to come. All of those things wrapped into one. So we haven't made significant errors necessarily in our Christian teaching. It's just that we've only focused on one aspect of salvation when God's given us so much more to talk about. There's three dimensions of it instead of just one. So let's look at a few in the Bible. When we talk about God bringing salvation to all peoples, we start to talk about portions in the story like the creation itself. When God creates the world, he says that it is good. And he starts to create a world in which all peoples are going to be able to participate. And that world is good. In that process, he starts to bring about um, what it should be like in the garden. And then as soon as we mess it up, he inaugurates a rescue plan. And he reaches out through the flood. And yes, though eight people were saved in that boat, God could have destroyed the entire world and instead decided to resurrect it back to life, to bring it back to life, to save it, to deliver all of humanity and give us another chance. And if you read through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, you can start to see that God is a God of rescue and of salvation from beginning to end, entering in and out of that. Particularly, God starts to make that plan to rescue all of people for all time through his covenant to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, all people on earth will be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed. 
If we're sitting here today, it's because we are part of that story of God's covenant promise to Abraham, where he begins to set into motion a rescue plan, a salvation plan for the whole world. And this is what we mean when we talk about it going to all people. If you start to read Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll just pull this out for just one quick fun moment. Isaiah chapter 2 starts like this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Israel. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many peoples, beat their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will not train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So God has a plan of bringing all nations into a salvific experience with him, where we put down our weapons, where we start to see things set to right. But did you notice that that happens in Jerusalem, through the God of Israel, not through every God on earth, not through a God of the pagans or a God that's being worshipped, that's being created by hands, and, and so it's made of clay or wood or stone. It is very clear here that God's salvation plan comes through and only through the God of Israel. And that is how the nations get to start to participate in the rescue and redemption that God has through the world. So you kind of get that when God talks about salvation, he's talking about saving the whole world. This shouldn't surprise us, those of us who've hung out in Revelation at the very end. We start to see that God is in the process of saving the whole world, redeeming, rescuing it, making it new, and the new heavens and the new earth come down and are enjoyed again in that rescue, that setting of things to right. The next way, again, that God continues to use salvation is to the people Israel. Deuteronomy 33 says this, Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. So the Bible uses the word saved not to say Israel is now in heaven forever with God. That's not what's happening at that moment. The Bible uses the word saved to say God is presently redeeming you, presently saving you, presently rescuing you and me. So the question isn't when were you saved? The question is how are you presently still being saved right now today? Where is God's salvation showing up? What's presently saving your soul, my soul? Where are you starting to see how God is still active in our life today, still our rescuer, still our deliverer, still our fortress? And we are in the process. We have been saved, and we are still in the process of experiencing that salvation constantly. We have this beautiful picture of this in the story of Israel. And as we were talking about all of this, I was telling Kevin, I have trouble. I love stories so much and love the Bible so much that I have trouble sitting and having a theological discussion about a word saved. Because I really want to just set it right back into story. So let's do that. At the beginning of Exodus, we hear this beautiful comment from Exodus 2, 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. 
in this moment, Israel doesn't even cry out to God. Did you notice? They just cry out. So God's not sitting there saying, well, if only they had said my name. They cry out because of their slavery. They cry out because of their oppression. They cry out because they're being forced to make bricks, to build huge tombs. They're, they're crying out for these reasons. By the way, the pyramids were already there by the time Abraham got there. So the Israelites didn't build the pyramids, but they built other things. Okay, just so you know. Prince of Egypt's a great cartoon, but it's not necessarily historically accurate. All right. Although it is fun to think about Moses having a chariot race with his Egyptian brother and causing everything to tumble down. But yes, okay. So at this moment, Israel cries out simply because of their slavery and God gets concerned for them. He remembers his covenant promise that he made to Abraham and he says, I will now set in motion my rescue and redemption plan and I will do that through human agents. And he does it through Moses But prior to Moses, Moses' mom, the midwives, Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter, who all saved Moses, and Moses' wife, and then through Moses. And God sets this rescue plan into action. And as he then gives Pharaoh 10 chances to let the Israelites go, ultimately as they're fleeing the country and Pharaoh is pursuing them, this is what it says in Exodus 14.30, that as God parts the Red Sea and Israel passes through, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. God saved them in that moment, saved, rescued, delivered. That's that context of the word saved when we talk about it. Has God rescued you from something? Has he rescued you? Not just about from the fires of hell and that someday, someday soon, we will go to a wonderful place in heaven. Has God presently rescued you? Has he presently rescued me? He has. He is in that business of rescue and salvation and being saved. He's in that business constantly. I'll tell you, one of my big stories of rescue in my life has come through Kevin. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family that was consisted of human beings. The rest of you, yes? Awesome. So when you grow up in a family made of other human beings, some human beings can say things that hurt, say things that, that may not be ultimately best, and you kind of grow up not always knowing if that's true or not. Have you ever had that? Have you, can you think right now about one thing, maybe five things, that a parent, a loved one, said to you growing up that you still have with you? Everyone says these things. My parents are wonderful and amazing and incredible. But there was one time when my mom said, Danielle, I will always love you, but I don't always like you. I was like, that's kind of painful. I'm sure that's true. And that's true of my love for you as well. I love you, but I don't always like you. But it's still hard to hear, right? Or my, uh, my boyfriend in junior high who said, you're cute in a weird sort of way. <laughs> right? You're like, I don't think that's a compliment. (laughs) Thanks for that, right? So you have those moments where in your life you've been told certain things. And there were certain things that were told to me over and over again in family contexts and circles. And so as Kevin and I were first married, and we'd be sitting at the dinner table, and just because we're there with my family, and the first five years of our marriage, we took care of my grandmother. So that's just a great way to start your marriage, actually, by the way. 
Um, it was actually quite wonderful. And Kevin laid down his life and loved her and allowed me to continue to spend time with her prior to her passing. And so we had this wonderful experience with Grandma, but we also had the experience of, you know, continuing to live with Grandma and my mom and all the family being there. And we lived in her home and her family home. We had all those experiences. And I remember one day early on in our marriage sitting at the dinner table and my grandma and and my mother said something to me. I don't remember what it was. It's just the kind of thing that moms say to you. Like I remember growing up, my grandfather said something like, um, I was pumping gas for him in the car. And, um, and he said, man, you should have been born a man. You should have been born a boy. I was like, why? And he said, well, you think like a man, you pump gas like a man, you drive like a man, you should have been born a man. Now, in the moment, I think he meant that as a compliment, but, you know, part of your, like, you're kind of, but, but I can't change that, right? And so um, even trying at sometimes to go by Danny instead of Danielle, all those things that kind of hang out in your world and you're kind of shaping you. So my mom had said something to me, my grandma said something to me, and Kevin leans over and whispers in the middle of that meal, and he goes, you know that's not true, right? I went, what? He goes, that's not true. What they just said about you, that's not true. I was like, that's salvation for me right now. That's living water for me. I thought it might not be true, but I've been sitting with it my whole life as though it were true. And in that moment, there was a breakthrough and there was some deliverance. There was being delivered from something that had been said to me my whole life, and now I'm being set free from that. So that salvation, that process of God saving and rescuing my soul happens on a regular basis in my life. And one of the primary deliverers of that rescue has been the love that Kevin has shown me. Christ's love through Kevin to me. And I'm so thankful for that on a daily basis. So I don't know if you've not yet had that experience, but there are moments, it doesn't have to be through a spouse, it can be through community, and it can be through good friendships, and it can be from the church coming around and rescuing and pulling you up out of despair, out of debt, out of feelings of hopelessness. These are moments of rescue and salvation. And so the Lord did this for Israel. He rescued and he saved them. Now what happens as soon as Israel gets out of the the passing of, of the Red Sea, leaves Egypt behind, 40 days later they show up where? Does anyone remember? And God gives them some stuff. Mount Sinai, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and starts to preach this beautiful Decalogue, and it's lovely and amazing and incredible, and we all start to say, those of us on this side of history, we have been taught, I have been taught, that the Israelites had to obey the law, and that that is how they were saved. The story tells us something different. So God has rescued and redeemed me from that narrative. Because here we see that God is rescuing, pulling Egypt, pulling Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, out of hurt and pain and despair. God is rescuing them from worshiping Pharaoh, and he's bringing them into right relationship with him. And he does that before they have the Torah, before they even know to cry out his name. He does that. Because God is a God of rescue, of salvation, and he wants to save. So Israel is saved early on. Now that process of being saved, it continues for 40 years in the desert, right? Because even though they left Egypt behind, physically, Egypt was still in their heart. And we know that because of disobedience, that they wandered, wandered in the desert for 40 years. 
And we've always thought of that only as a curse. But if you stop for a moment, isn't there also a blessing and allowing an entire generation that only knows how to live as slaves to die in that desert? So that that mindset, that slave mindset dies in the desert and God can start to renew and rescue his people again in another form, spiritual rescue, mental rescue from that mindset of slavery. And then the Bible talks about individual rescue. Psalm 18 is a beautiful psalm that starts to just talk about how God has brought rescue to this individual. And actually, you can just read a whole bunch of psalms. There were so many to pick from. And you can think about the many different ways that God brings rescue in our lives. Um, Think about Jesus with the demoniac, um, who he rescues from that spiritual prison and sets free to live a new life. But if you hang out with Psalm 18 for just one second... It starts like this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rescuer, the one who is saving me. He is my God. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who's worthy of praise and I am saved from my enemies. So that personal rescue, that personal salvation language is used individually here in the Bible. It's used corporately for all of Israel. And it's even used to talk about how all of the nations and all of the peoples on earth will be able to participate in that opportunity of salvation. They'll be invited to participate in it when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, as Isaiah says, as well as Paul. So let's briefly look at those components of salvation in the Bible, that earthly component, spiritual component, and future component. The one that we talk about most in the church is that I've been saved to go to enter into heaven and into that right relationship with Jesus. Amen. That happens. In fact, in Egypt, there was this God named Ma'at, and this God, in all and many of the different tombs and their scenes, would have a moment of judgment where they would weigh your heart against a feather. And that God of judgment would sit there in that moment and say, let's weigh your deeds here. Let's sit here and say, how did you measure up? And if your deeds, if your heart is lighter than the feather, then you get to enter into the great world to come. And if your heart is heavier than the feather then you don't get to enter in. Can you believe that? That concept of being judged, of being weighed out, all of that, that system was present, not just in the Egyptian culture, but it's present in all of our cultures. We still do this today, don't we? I think there are many times where we look at people and we are the ones taking the role of ma'at and trying to figure out if their hearts are heavy or are light, if they're going to get in or not. And this is not really our job, is it? The great news as we look towards not just the future, but also this present moment of what we get to live in, is that Jesus is going to release us from all of this. Colossians 2 says it this way. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus says, you know that system where you try to measure everything out, where you try to sort out who's in, who's out, whether you're in or you're out or all that? I'm just going to do away with that entirely, and I'm going to stand in its place. 
No more will you sit here and have to figure out what your level of indebtedness is. No more will you sit here and have to weigh out your deeds one at a time and figure out if there's enough, if it tilts just enough this way so you can get in. Instead now, Jesus just comes and gets rid of that entire thing. And we're saved from that. We are absolutely saved and rescued and redeemed and delivered from that when we come into a relationship with Jesus, when we trust him. And I'm not just talking about how we get to someday go to heaven. I'm talking about right now. You and I get to right now start to live in the grace and the freedom and the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross where we have been set free from being concerned and worried whether or not we measure up. Instead, God says here, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I love you. I am well pleased with you. And it's his love and his mercy and his grace that rescues us, redeems us, before we maybe even know his name sometimes, right? Jesus died on the cross for each one of us. He has saved us and rescued us from that. And that doesn't just get us into heaven, but it gets us into a relationship with him right now and into a community with him right now. The Bible tells us we are saved from, but it also tells us that we are saved to. We are not just rescued from the pit of hell. We are saved to a new life where we're made whole, where God's rescue and redemption, and we are now saved. We're experiencing that on a different plane in a different way. When Israel comes into right relationship with God, when they start to be, they're rescued, redeemed, saved before they've done a thing, then God brings them into that relationship with them and says, okay, now that you're my people, here's how you behave because you haven't just been saved from Egypt, you have been saved to bless the world. And as Israel, you live, you will shine a light to the nations, to all of the Gentiles, and they will pass through you and know that there is a God in Israel. So Israel is rescued from Egypt, but rescued for a purpose. And the same is true of you and me. We have been rescued from sin and death and oppression and loneliness and hurt and pain. And maybe we've even been delivered physically. We've had physical healing in our life, spiritual healing in our life. Physically, we've been healed from or delivered from debt or delivered from want or delivered from loneliness. We have been set, rescued, saved from all of those things, but it's been for a purpose. We are saved to something. Ephesians says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live and you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. We have been rescued and we have been saved. We've been brought back from dead to new life. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, so it's present rescue and it's future, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves. It's not because you said four spiritual laws. It's not because you prayed the right words. You didn't save yourself. Jesus saved you. 
He rescued all of us on the cross. All of us saved all of us in that moment. Whether or not you participate in that is up to you. That rescue, that salvation's been brought. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you've been rescued, I've been rescued, we've been saved and delivered, and why? To do good works, which Christ has prepared for us to do. So it's not just to sit there and go, oh, phew, I got my golden ticket into heaven and I'm all set. Or even presently, isn't it wonderful to not live in my sin? To be able to say to Jesus, please help me, and to have him rescue me, whether it's from addiction or brokenness or whatever it is. And in those moments, God's continuing to bring rescue in our life. It's not only that we sit and say, I am saved and I'm rescued, but it is also for the purpose of doing good works to see those good works come in the world around us. Saved from and saved to. Saved for a purpose. Yeah? And that's good news. It's good news to know that you don't only have to wait for rescue at death. And imagine that someday that might be really nice. Isn't it great news to participate in salvation and rescue to say, I am presently saved. I'm saved from myself. I'm saved from thinking I'm the most important person in this room. I'm saved from having to go after every new latest fad. I'm saved from having to compete with everybody else next to me. I'm saved from having to have the nicest car or the nicest house. Because guess what? Now that I know Jesus and I know his economy and his life and the gifts that he's given me, I'm saved from needing that. I know that it's more. One of my best friends, Christine, um, she died of cancer in 1999. And she had a bone cancer come into her leg at age 17. You can imagine a 17-year-old all of a sudden gets cancer in her leg, right? It's not great. And she danced on Soul Train and was an actress and was later in Northern Exposure and all of a sudden. She was very cool, very cool, Christine. When that cancer came on her leg, she did not yet know Jesus. I met her later in her life. Um, then the cancer came, back, came on her lungs after they took the tumor off of her leg. And then after that, it came back on her leg again. And they said, really, at this point, you have bone cancer. It's fairly terminal. You got it young. The likelihood of you surviving and beating this disease is pretty low. Your only option is to cut off the leg. Well, in between the time when Christine was diagnosed with cancer and the time when that, that situation was presented to her, a nurse had shared Christ with her. And in that moment, as she became a follower of Jesus, she realized that the thing that she was fighting to keep her leg was probably going to be the thing that killed her. And instead, she was saved. Saved and rescued from viewing herself in the image of the world. Saved and rescued from saying, no one will hire an actress who only has one leg. Saved and rescued from saying, I'll never dance again. What kind of life will this be? Instead, she said, you know what? I have Jesus. Cut it off. In fact, she actually said, cut the darn thing off. Because... She was saved from needing to see her life and see herself in only that image, the only image that she knew of that Hollywood had for her. And one of her biggest roles she landed, she actually landed after that as a result of the fact that her leg was gone because she was a character on Northern Exposure in a wheelchair running a race. 
And her whole life was birthed beautifully as a result of even cancer. Cancer, Jesus used cancer to save her and to start to bring her into a right relationship with him and that she was then a light to everyone else around her. And sometimes we think the thing that we're trying to save is the thing that really we need to get rid of and we need to just allow ourselves to be saved by Jesus. So we're saved, so now what? What's presently saving your soul right now? Where is God showing up in your life and in my life and bringing some rescue, bringing some oxygen, bringing some life? And how has it changed how you live? How has it changed the priorities of what we're looking for in this world? What is it you and I are being saved and rescued from? And then, what are you bringing that rescue and salvation to? What is it that God's asked you to start to set to right in this world around us? Because if the church's only mission is to get people into heaven, then that will be all that we do. But I don't think that's the only mission. I think the mission of the church is to start to preach and, and live the truth of Jesus in our community, to start to bring that good news of rescue and hope and salvation in our community. So let's start to do that. What is it that God's inviting you to bring some salvation to this week? some rescue to this week. Throughout the Bible, God uses people as the agents of his rescue, the agents of his salvation. And we have been saved to do good works. It's just bigger than we thought it was. That's all. Whatever you've thought about your salvation and that word saved before, that can still apply. It's just bigger than that. It just also applies to the right now as well as the world to come. It also applies to the physical experience that we're having, as well as the spiritual, as well as the future. And it also applies to not just us individually, my own personal individual faith with Jesus, which is great and good, but not how the ancient world worked. It's about us as a community being rescued and saved together and bringing that rescue and salvation to the world around us. So I want to invite the band up so we can start a time of just prayer and worship as we think together about what it is that we have been saved from, how it is we've experienced that new life. Maybe there's something that you're looking to have a breath of fresh air of salvation in your life right now for. I don't know what that might be, whether it's something you're struggling with or something you need help with, whether it's loneliness, or maybe it's simply that you didn't know that there's an opportunity to be rescued by the creator of this universe who loves and adores and wants to save you, save me from an existence without him. That from the very beginning of time, this rescue plan, from the moment things went sideways in the garden, God has been inaugurating this rescue plan and trying to bring us all back to him again. And not just to us, but to the entire world, to all of his people here. Jesus, we love you and we ask right now, Lord, that you would make your salvation known in our lives. God, that all of us truly would be saved. Um, Not just saved for the world to come, Lord, but saved right now in this present moment from ourselves, from the pressures of the world around us, from the lies that the world teaches speaks to us, God. Would you save and rescue, bring salvation to that. And as you bring new life, to us, God, life abundant, would you cause us to be able to be agents of your rescue and salvation in this world? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.